0: Chapters thirty eight and thirty nine of A Poor Wise Man by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty eight Ellen was greatly disturbed at three o'clock that afternoon. She found Edith and announced her intention of going out. I guess you can get the supper for once, she said ungraciously. Edith looked up at her with wistful eyes. I wish you didn't hate me so, Ellen i don't hate you ellen was slightly mollified but when i see you trying to put your burdens on other people edith got up then and rather timidly put her arms around ellen's neck i love him so ellen she whispered and i'll try so hard to make him happy unexpected tears came into ellen's eyes she stroked the girl's fair hair never mind she said the good man's got a way of fixing things to suit himself and i guess he knows best we do what it's foreordained we do after all mrs boyd was sleeping edith went back to her sewing she had depended all her life on her mother's needle and now that that had failed her she was hastily putting some clothing into repair in the kitchen near the stove the suit she meant to be married in was hung to dry after pressing she was quietly happy Willie cameron found her there he told her of Mrs. Davis's death, and then placed the license on the table at her side. "'I think it would be better tomorrow, Edith,' he said. He glanced down at the needle in her unaccustomed fingers. She seemed very appealing with her new task and the new light in her eyes. After all, it was worthwhile, even if it cost a lifetime to take a soul out of purgatory. "'I had to tell Mother Willie.' "'That's all right. Did it cheer her any?' "'Wonderfully. She's asleep now.' He went up to his room, and for some time she heard him moving about. Then she heard the scraping of his chair as he drew it to his desk and vaguely wondered. When he came down he had a sealed envelope in his hand. "'I'm going out, Edith,' he said. "'I shall be late coming back, and—' "'I'm going to ask you to do something for me.' She loved doing things for him. She flushed slightly. "'If I am not back here by two o'clock tonight,' he said, I want you to open that letter and read it. Then go to the nearest telephone and call up the number I've written down. Ask for the man whose name is given and read him the message. Willie, she gasped, You are doing something dangerous. What I really expect, he said, smiling down at her, is to be back feeling more or less of a fool by eleven o'clock. I'm providing against an emergency that will almost surely never happen, and I'm depending on the most trustworthy person I know. Very soon after, he went away. She sat for some time after he had gone, fingering the blank white envelope and wondering, a little frightened but very proud of his trust. Dan came in and went up the stairs. That reminded her of the dinner and she sat down in the kitchen with a pan of potatoes on her knee. As she pared them, she sang. She was still singing when Ellen came back. Something had happened to Ellen she stood in the kitchen her hat still on drawing her cotton gloves through her fingers and staring at edith without seeing her you're not sick are you ellen ellen put down her gloves and slowly took off her hat still with the absorbed eyes of a sleepwalker. i'm not sick she said at last i've had bad news sit down and i'll make you a cup of tea then maybe you'll feel like talking about it i don't want any tea do you know that that man Akers has married Lily Cardew? Married her? The devil out of hell that he is. Ellen's voice was terrible. And all the time knowing that you... She's at home, the poor child, and Mademoiselle just sat and cried when she told me. It's a secret, she added fiercely. You keep your mouth shut about it. She never lived with him. She left him right off i wouldn't know it now but the servants were talking about the house being forbidden to him and i went straight to mademoiselle i said you keep him away from miss lily because i know something about him it was when i told her that she said they were married she went out and up the stairs moving slowly and heavily edith sat still the pan on her knee and thought did Willie know was that why he was willing to marry her she was swept with bitter jealousy and added to that came suspicion something very near the truth flashed into her mind and stayed there in her bitterness she saw Willie telling lily of acres and herself and taking her away or having her taken it must have been something like that or why had she left him but her anger slowly subsided in the end she began to feel that the new situation rendered her own position more secure even justified her own approaching marriage since lily was gone why should she not marry willie cameron if what ellen had said was true she knew him well enough to know that he would deliberately strangle his love for lily if it were true and if he knew it she moved about the kitchen making up the fire working automatically in that methodless way that always set ellen's teeth on edge and thinking but subconsciously she was listening too she had heard dan go into his mother's room and close the door she was bracing herself against his coming down dan was difficult those days irritable and exacting moody too and much away from home he hated idleness at its best and the strike was idleness at its worst behind the movement toward the general strike too he felt there was some hidden and sinister influence at work an influence that was determined to turn what had commenced as a labor movement into a class uprising that very afternoon, for the first time, he had heard whispered the phrase, "'When the town goes dark.' There was a diabolical suggestion in it that sent him home with his fists clenched. He did not go to his mother's room at once. Instead, he drew a chair to his window and sat there staring out on the little street. "'When the town went dark, what about all the little streets like this one?' After an hour or so of ominous quiet, Edith heard him go into his mother's room, her hands trembled as she closed her door. She heard him come down at last, and suddenly remembering the license, hid it in a drawer. She knew that he would destroy it if he saw it, and Dan's face justified the move. He came in and stood glowering at her, his hands in his pockets. "'What made you tell that lie to mother?' he demanded. "'She was worried, Dan, and it will be true tomorrow. "'You, Dan, you didn't tell her it was a lie, did you?' I should have, but I didn't. What do you mean it will be true tomorrow? We are going to be married tomorrow. I'll lock you up first, he said angrily. I've been expecting something like that. I've watched you, and I've seen you watching him. You'll not do it, do you hear? Do you think I'd let you get away with that? Isn't it enough that he's got to support us without your coaxing him to marry you? She made no reply, but went on with a perfunctory laying of the table. Her mouth had gone very dry. The poor fish, Dan snarled. I thought he had some sense. Letting himself in for a nice life, isn't he? We're not his kind, and you know it. He knows more in a minute than you'll know all your days. In about three months he'll hate the very sight of you, and then where'll you be? when she made no reply he called to the dog and went out into the yard she saw him there brooding and sullen and she knew that he had not finished he would say no more to her but he would wait and have it out with Willie himself supper was silent no one ate much and ellen coming down with the tray reported mrs boyd as very tired and wanting to settle down early she looks bad to me she said to edith i think the doctor ought to see her i'll go and send him edith was glad to get out of the house she had avoided the streets lately but as it was a supper hour the pavements were empty only joe wilkinson bareheaded stood in the next doorway and smiled and flushed slightly when he saw her how's your mother he asked she's not so well i'm going to get the doctor do you mind if i get my hat and walk there with you i'm going somewhere else from there joe "Well." "'I'll walk a block or two anyhow.' She waited impatiently. She liked Joe, but she did not want him then. She wanted to think and plan alone and in the open air, away from the little house with its odors and its querulous thumping cane upstairs, away from Ellen's grim face and Dan's angry one. He came out almost immediately, followed by a string of little Wilkinsons clamoring to go along. "'Do you mind?' he asked her. "'They can trail along behind.' The poor kids don't get out much. Bring them along, of course, she said, somewhat resignedly. And with a flash of her old spirit, I might have brought Jinx, too. Then we'd have had a real procession. They moved down the street with five little Wilkinsons trailing along behind, and Edith was uncomfortably aware that Joe's eyes were upon her. You don't look well, he said at last. You're wearing yourself out taking care of your mother, Edith i don't do much for her you'd say that of course you're very unselfish am i she laughed a little but the words touched her don't think i'm better than i am joe you're the most wonderful girl in the world i guess you know how i feel about that don't joe but at that very moment a very little wilkinson fell headlong and burst into loud despairing wails joe set her on her feet brushed her down with a fatherly hand and on her refusal to walk further picked her up and carried her the obvious impossibility of going on with what he had been saying made him smile sheepishly can you beat it he said helplessly these darn kids but he held the child close at the next corner he turned toward home edith stopped and watched his valiant young back his small train of followers he was going to be very sad when he knew poor Joe, with his vicarious fatherhood, his cluttered, noisy, anxious life. Life was queer, queer and cruel. From the doctor's office, the waiting room lined with patient figures, she went on. She had a very definite plan in mind, but it took all her courage to carry it through. Outside the Benedict apartments, she hesitated, but she went in finally, upheld by sheer determination. The chair at the telephone desk was empty but sam remembered her he's out miss he said he's out most all the time now with the election coming on what time does he usually get in sometimes early sometimes late said sam watching her everything pertaining to louis Acres was of supreme interest those days to the benedict employees the beating he had received the coming election the mysterious young woman who had come but once and the black days that had followed his return from the St. Elmo, out of such patchwork, they were building a small drama of their own. Sam was trying to fit in Edith's visit with the rest. The Benedict was neither more moral nor less than its kind. An unwritten law kept respectable women away, but the management showed no inclination to interfere where there was no noise or disorder. Employees were supposed to see that no feminine visitors remained after midnight, that was all. You might go up and wait for him, Sam suggested. That is, if it's important. It's very important. He threw open the gate of the elevator hospitably. At half-past ten that night, Louis Akers went back to his rooms. The telephone girl watched him sharply as he entered. There's a lady waiting for you, Mr. Akers. He swung toward her eagerly. A lady? Did she give any name? No, Sam let her in and took her up. He said he thought you wouldn't mind. She'd been here before. The thought of Edith never entered Aker's head. It was Lily, Lily, miraculously come back to him. Lily, his wife. Going up in the elevator, he hastily formulated a plan of action. He would not be too ready to forgive. She had cost him too much. But in the end he would take her in his arms and hold her close. Lily, Lily! it was the bitterness of his disappointment that made him brutal wicked and unscrupulous as he was with men with women he was as gentle as he was cruel he put them from him relentlessly and kissed them good-bye it was his boast that any one of them would come back to him if he wanted her edith listening for his step was startled at the change in his face when he saw her you he said thickly what are you doing here i've been waiting all evening i want to ask you something he flung his hat into a chair and faced her well is it true that you are married to lily cardew if i am what are you going to do about it his eyes were wary but his color was coming back he was breathing more easily i only heard it today i must know lou it's awfully important what did you hear he was watching her closely i heard you were married and that she had left you it seemed to him incredible that she had come here to taunt him she who was responsible for the shipwreck of his marriage that she should come there and face him and not expect him to kill her where she stood he pulled himself together it is true enough he swore under his breath she didn't leave me she was taken away and i'll get her back if i-you little fool i ought to kill you if you wanted a cheap revenge, you've got it. I don't want revenge, Lou. He caught her by the arm. Then what brought you here? I wanted to be sure Lily Cardew was married. Well, she is. What about it? That's all. That's not all. What about it? She looked up at him gravely. Because if she is, I'm going to marry Mister Cameron to morrow. At the sight of his astounded face, she went on hastily. He knows Lou, and he offered anyhow. And what, he said slowly, has my wife to do with that? I wanted to be fair to him. And I think he is-I think he used to be terribly in love with her. Quite apart from his increasing fear of Willie Cameron and his committee, there had been in Akers for some time a latent jealousy of him. In a flash he saw the room at the Saint Elmo and a cold eyed man inside the doorway the humiliation of that scene had never left him of his own maudlin inadequacy of hearing from beyond a closed and locked door the closing of another door behind lily and the man who had taken her away from him a mad anger and jealousy made him suddenly reckless so he said he is terribly in love with my wife and he intends to marry you that's interesting because my sweet child he's got a damn poor chance of marrying you or anybody Lou. Listen, he said deliberately. Men who stick their heads into the lion's jaws are apt to lose them. Our young friend Cameron has done that. I'll change the figure. When a man tries to stop a great machine by putting his impudent fingers into the cog wheels, the man's a fool. He may lose his hand, or he may lose his life fortunately for edith he moved on that speech to the side table and mixed himself a highball it gave her a moment to summon her scattered wits to decide on a plan of action her early training on the streets her recent months of deceit helped her now if he had expected any outburst from her it did not come if you mean that he is in danger i don't believe it all right old girl i've told you but the whiskey restored his equilibrium again that is he added slowly i've warned you you'd better warn him he's doing his best to get into trouble she knew him well saw the craftiness come back into his eyes and met it with equal strategy i'll tell him she said moving toward the door you haven't scared me for a minute and you won't scare him you and your machine she dared not seem to hurry you're a boaster she said with the door open you always were and you'll never lay a hand on him you're like all bullies you're a coward she was through the doorway by that time and in terror for fear having told her so much he would try to detain her she saw the idea come into his face too just as she slipped outside he made a move toward her i think he began she slammed the door and ran down the hallway toward the stairs. She heard him open the door and come out into the hall, but she was well in advance and running like a deer. Edith, he called. She stumbled on the second flight of stairs and fell a half-dozen steps, but she picked herself up and ran on. At the bottom of the lower flight she stopped and listened, but he had gone back. She heard the slam of his door as he closed it. But the insistent need of haste drove her on headlong. She shot through the lobby, past the staring telephone girl, and into the street and there settled down into steady running, her elbows close to her sides, trying to remember to breathe slowly and evenly. She must get home somehow, get the envelope and follow the directions inside. Her thoughts raced with her. It was almost eleven o'clock and Willie had been gone for hours. She tried to pray, but the words did not come. CHAPTER 39 At something after seven o'clock that night, Willie Cameron and Pink Denslow reached that point on the Mayville road which had been designated by the storekeeper, Cusick. They left the car there, hidden in a grove, and struck off across country to the west. Willie Cameron had been thoughtful for some time, and as they climbed a low hill, going with extreme caution, he said, "'I'm still sceptical about Cusick, Pink. Do you think he's straight?' "'One of the best men we've got,' pink replied confidently he's put us on to several things he's foreign born isn't he that's his value they don't suspect him for a minute but what does he get out of it good citizen said pink with promptness you've got to remember cameron that a lot of these fellows are better americans than we are they're like religious converts stronger than the ones born in the fold they're americans because they want to be anyhow you ought to be strong for him cameron he said to tell you but no one else i'll tell you how strong i am for him later Willie cameron said grimly just at this minute i'm waiting to be shown they advanced with infinite caution for the evening was still light going slowly it was well after eight and fairly dark before they came within sight of the farm buildings in the valley below long unpainted they were barely discernible in the shadows of the hills the land around had been carefully cleared and both men were dismayed at the difficulty of access without being seen doesn't look very good does it pink observed i will say this for seclusion and keeping away unwanted visitors it has it all over any dugout i ever saw in france listen Willie cameron said tensely they stood on the alert but only the evening sounds of country and forest rewarded them what was it pink inquired after perhaps two minutes of waiting plain scare on my part probably i don't so much mind this little excursion pink as i hate the idea that a certain gentleman named cusick may have a chance to come to our funerals and laugh himself to death when real darkness had fallen they had reached the lower fringe of the woods pink had the fault of the city dweller however of being unable to step lightly in the dark and their progress had been less silent than it should have been in spite of his handicap Willie cameron made his way with the instinctive knowledge of the country-bred boy treading like a cat pretty poor pink said in a discouraged whisper after a twig had burst under his foot with a report like the shot of a pistol you travel like a spook while i listen pink i'm going in alone to look around stop muttering and listen to me it's poor strategy not to have a reserve somewhere isn't it i'm a poor prune at the best pink said stubbornly but i am not going to let you go into that place alone you can rave all you want very well then we'll both stay here you are about as quiet as a horse going through a corn patch after some moments pink spoke again if you insist on stealing the whole show he said sulkily what am i to do run to town for help if you need it "'I'm not going to round up the outfit if there is one. "'I haven't lost my mind. "'I'll see what is going on or about to go on. "'Then I'll come back.' "'Here?' "'Cameron considered. "'Better meet me at the machine,' he decided after a glance at the sky. "'In half an hour you won't be able to see your hand in front of you. "'Wait here for a half hour or so, and then start back. "'And for heaven's sake don't shoot at anything you see moving.' as a matter of fact i might as well have your revolver i won't need it but it may avoid any accidental shooting by a youth i both love and admire if i hear any shooting i'll come in pink said still sulky come in and welcome said Willie cameron and pink knew he was smiling he took the revolver and slipped away into the darkness leaving pink both melancholy and disturbed unaccustomed to night in the woods he found his nerves twitching at every sound in the war there had been a definite enemy definitely placed even when he had gone into that vile strip between the trenches there had been a general direction for the inimical here he moved carefully and stood with his back against a tree not a sound came from the farm buildings Willie cameron's progress too was noiseless with no way to tell the lapse of time and gauging it by his war experience when an hour had apparently passed he knew that cameron had been gone about ten minutes time dragged on a cow unmilked lowed plaintively once or twice a september night breeze set the dying leaves on the trees to rustling and stirred the dry ones about his feet pink's mind gradually reassured turned to other things he thought of lily cardew for one like Willie Cameron, he knew he would always love her, but unlike Willie, the first pain of her loss was gone. He was glad that time was over. He was glad that she was at home again, safe from those. Someone was moving near him, passing within twenty feet. Whoever it was was stepping cautiously, but blunderingly. It was not Cameron then. He was a football only, not even an outline before pink could decide on a line of action the sound was lost every sense acute he waited he had decided that if the incident were repeated he would make an effort to get the fellow from behind but there was no return the wind had died again and there was no longer even the rustling of the leaves to break the utter stillness suddenly he saw a red flash near the barn and an instant later heard the report of a pistol Came immediately after that a brief fusillade of shots, a pause, then two or three scattering ones. With the first shot, Pink started running. He was vaguely conscious of other steps near him, running also, but he could see nothing. His whole mind was set on finding Willie Cameron. Alone, he had not a chance, but two of them together could put up a fight. He pelted along, stumbling, recovering, stumbling again. Another shot was fired. They hadn't got him yet, or they wouldn't be shooting. HE RAISED HIS VOICE IN A GREAT CALL. CAMERON, HERE, CAMERON. HE RAN INTO A LOW FENCE THEN AND IT THREW HIM. HE HAD HARDLY GOT TO HIS KNEES BEFORE THE OTHER RUNNING FIGURE HAD HURLED ITSELF ON HIM AND STRUCK HIM WITH THE BUTT OF A REVOLVER. HE DROPPED FLAT AND LAY STILL. FOR WEEKS Waslowski HAD KNOWN OF THE GROWING STRENGTH OF THE VIGILANCE COMMITTEE AND THAT IT WAS ARMING steadily it threatened absolutely the success of his plans even the election of akers and the changes he would make in the city police even the ruse of other strikes and machine-made riotings to call away the state troops none of these or all of them would be effectual against an organized body of citizens duly called to the emergency and such an organization was already effected within a week when the first card reached his hands it had grown to respectable proportions Woslosky went to Doyle, and they made their counter moves quickly. No more violence. A seemingly real, but deceptive orderliness. They were dealing with inflammatory material, however, and now and then it got out of hand. Unlike Doyle, the calculating who made each move slowly and watched its results with infinite zest, the pole chafed under delay. "'We can't hold them much longer,' he complained bitterly. "'This thing of holding them off until after the election.' and until Akers takes office. It's got too many ifs in it. It was haste, lost Seattle, said Doyle, as unmoved as Waslowski was excited. Waslowski did not like Louis Akers. What was more important, he distrusted him. When he heard of his engagement to Lily Cardew, he warned Doyle about him. He's in this thing for what he can get out of it, he said. He'll go as far as he can with safety to be accepted by the Cardews exactly was doyle's dry comment with safety you said but he knows you and he knows me and he'll be straight because he's afraid not to be when there's a woman in it said the pole sceptically but doyle only smiled he had known many women and loved none of them and he was temperamentally unable to understand the type of man who saw the world through a woman's eyes and in them so Woslosky was compelled to watch the growth of Willie cameron's organization and to hold in check the violent passions he had himself roused and to wait gnawing his nails with inaction and his heart with rage but these certain things he discovered that the organization's growth was coincident with a new interest in local politics as though some vital force had wakened the plain people to a sense of responsibility that a drug clerk named Cameron was the founder and moving spirit of the league, and that he was using Hendrick's candidacy as a means rousing the city to a burning patriotic activity that Mr. Waslowski regarded as extremely pernicious, and that this same Willie Cameron had apparently a knowledge of certain plans, which was rather worse than pernicious. Mr. Waslowski's name for it was damnable, for instance, there were the lists of the various city stores and their estimated contents missing from mr Waslowski's own inconspicuous trunk in a storage-house on that had been based the plan for feeding the revolution by the simple expedient of exchanging by organized pillage the contents of the city stores for foodstuffs from the farmers in outlying districts revolution according to mr Waslowski, could only be starved out he had no anxiety as to troops which would be sent against them because he had a cynical belief that a man's country was less to him than various other things including his stomach he believed that all armies were riddled with sedition and fundamentally opposed to law copies of other important matters too were missing lists of officials for the revolutionary city government and of deputies to take the places of the disbanded police plans for manning by the radicals the city light water and power plants a schedule of public eating-houses to take the place of the restaurants woslosky began to find this drug clerk with the ridiculous given name getting on his nerves he considered him a dangerous enemy to progress that particular form of progress which mr woslosky advocated and he suspected him of a lack of ethics regarding trunks and storage mr woslosky had the old-world idea that the best government was a despotism tempered by assassination he thought considerably about Willie Cameron. But the plan concerning the farmhouse was, in the end, devised by Louis Akers. Woslosky was sceptical. It was true that Cameron might stick his head into the lion's jaws, but precautions had been known to be taken at such times to prevent their closing. However, the Pole was desperate. He took six picked men with him that afternoon to the farm and made a strategic survey of the situation. The house was closed and locked but he was not concerned with the house cusick had told denslow the meetings were held late at night in the barn and to the barn woslosky repaired sawed off shotgun under his coat and cigarette in mouth and inspected it with his evil smile two men young and reckless might easily plan to conceal themselves under the hay in the loft and woslosky put down his gun and went down into the cow-barn below whistling softly to himself he began to enjoy the prospect he gathered some eggs from the feed boxes carrying them in his hat and breaking the lock of the kitchen door he and his outfit looted the closet there and had an early supper being careful to extinguish the fire afterwards not until dusk was falling did he post his men three outside among the outbuildings one as a sentry near the woods and two in the barn itself he himself took up his station inside the barn door sitting on the floor with his gun across his knees Looking out from there, he saw the sharp flash of a hastily extinguished match and snarled with anger. He had forbidden smoking. "'I've got to go out,' he said cautiously. "'Don't you fools shoot me when I come back.' He slipped out into what was by that time complete blackness. Some five minutes later he came back, still noiselessly and treading like a cat. He could only locate the barn door by feeling for it and above the light scraping of his fingers he could hear inside cautious footsteps over the board floor he scowled again damn this country quiet anyhow but he had found the doorway and was feeling his way through when he found himself caught and violently thrown the fall and the surprise stunned him he lay still for an infuriated helpless second with a knee on his chest and both arms tightly held to hear one of his own men above him saying got him all right woslosky you've got the rope haven't you you fool snarled woslosky from the floor let me up you've half killed me didn't i tell you i was going out he scrambled to his feet and to an astounded silence but you came in a couple of minutes ago somebody came in you heard him cusick didn't you waslowski whirled and closed and fastened the barn doors and almost with the same movement drew a searchlight and flashed it over the place it was apparently empty the pole burst into blasphemous anger punctuated with sharp questions both men had heard the cautious entrance they had taken for his own both men had remained silent and unsuspicious and both were positive whoever had come in had not gone out again he stationed one man at the door and commenced a merciless search. The summer's hay filled one end, but it was closely packed below and offered no refuge. Armed with the shotgun and with the flash in his pocket, Woslosky climbed the ladder to the loft, going softly. He listened at the top and then searched it with the light, holding it far to the left for a possible bullet. The loft was empty. He climbed into it and walked over it, gun in one hand and a flash in the other, searching for some buried figure but there was nothing the loft was fragrant with the newly dried hay sweet and empty woslosky descended the ladder again the flash extinguished and stood again on the barn floor considering cusick was a man without imagination and he had sworn that someone had come in then suddenly there was a whir of wings outside and above excited flutterings first and then a general flight of the pigeons who roosted on the roof Wuslowski listened and slowly smiled we've got him boys he said without excitement outside and call the others he's on the roof cusick whistled shrilly and as the pole ran out he met the others coming pell-mell toward him he flung a guard of all five of them around the barn and he himself walked off a hundred feet or so and gazed upward the very outline of the ridgepole was indistinguishable and he swore softly in the hope of drawing an answering flash he fired but without result the explosion echoed and re-echoed died away he called to cusick and had him try the same experiment following the line of the gutter as nearly as possible in the darkness on that side and emptying his revolver still silence Waslowski began to doubt the pigeons might have seen his flashlight might have heard his own stealthy movements he was intensely irritated the shooting, if the alarm had been false, had ruined everything. He saw, as in a vision, Doyle's sneering face when he told him. Beside him, Cusick was reloading his revolver in the darkness. Then, out of the night, came a call from the direction of the woods and unintelligible at that distance. "'What's that?' Cusick said hoarsely. Waslosky made no reply. He was listening. Someone was approaching, now running, now stopping, as though confused.' Wysloski held his gun ready and waited. Then, from a distance, he heard his name called. He stepped inside the door of the barn and showed the light for a moment. Soon after, the sentry floundered in, breathless and excited. "'I got one of them,' he gasped. "'Hit him with my gun. He's lying back by the stone fence.' "'Did you call out, or did he?' "'He did. That's how I knew it wasn't one of our fellows. He called Cameron, so he's the other one.' Waslosky drew a deep breath. Then it was Cameron on the roof. It was Cameron they wanted. He'll sleep for an hour or two if he ever wakes up, Pink's assailant boasted. But Waslosky was taking no chances that night. He sent two men after Pink and began to pace the floor thoughtfully. If he could have waited for daylight it would have been simple enough, but he did not know how much time he had he did not underestimate young cameron's intelligence and it had occurred to him that that young scott might cannily have provided against his failure to return then too the state constabulary had an uncomfortable habit of riding lonely back roads at night and shots could be heard a long distance off he had never surveyed the barn roof closely but he knew that it was steeply pitched cameron then was probably braced somewhere in the gutter the departure of the two men had left him short-handed, and he waited impatiently for their return. With a ladder, provided it could be quietly placed, a man could shoot from a corner along two sides of the roof. With two ladders at diagonal corners, they could get him. But a careful search discovered no ladders on the place. He went out, and standing close against the wall for protection, called up. "'We know you're there, Cameron,' he said. "'If you come down, we won't hurt you.' if you don't we'll get you and you know it but he received no reply soon after that the two men carried in pink Denzo and laid him on the floor of the barn then waslowski tried again more reckless this time with anger he stood out somewhat from the wall and called one more chance cameron or we'll put a bullet through your friend here come down or we'll something struck him heavily and he fell with a bullet in the shoulder he struggled to his feet and gained the shelter of the wall his face twisted with pain all right he said if that's the way you feel about it he regained the barn and had his arm supported in an extemporized sling then he ordered pink to be tied and fighting down his pain considered the situation cameron was on the roof and armed even if he had no extra shells he still had five shots in reserve and he would not waste any of them whoever tried to scale the walls would be done in at once whoever attempted to follow him to the roof by way of the loft would be shot instantly and his own condition demanded haste the bullets striking from above had broken his arm every movement was torture he thought of setting fire to the barn then cameron would have the choice of two things to surrender or to be killed he might get some of them first however well that was a part of the game he delivered a final ultimatum from the shelter of the doorway i've just thought of something cameron he called we're going to fire the barn your young friend is here tied and we'll leave him here do you get that either throw down that gun of yours and come down or i'm inclined to think you'll be up against it i'll give you a minute or so to think it over at half-past eleven o'clock that night the first of four automobiles drove into friendship it was driven by a hatless young man in a raincoat over a suit of silk pajamas, and it contained four county detectives and the city chief of police. Behind it, but well out distance, came the other cars. Some of them driven by leading citizens in a state of considerable déshabillé. At a cross street in Friendship, the lead car drew up, and flashlights were turned on a road map in the rear of the car. There was some argument over the proper road, and a member of the state constabulary, riding up to investigate, showed a strong inclination to place them under arrest. It took a moment to put him right. "'Wish I could go along,' he said wistfully. "'The place you want is back there. I can't leave the town, but I'll steer you out. You'll probably run into some of our fellows back there.' He rode on ahead, his big black horse restive in the light from the lamps behind him at the end of a lane he stopped straight ahead up there he said you'll find he broke off and stared ahead to where a dull red glare reflected on the low-hanging clouds that appeared over the crest of the hill something doing up there he called suddenly let's go he jerked his revolver free dug his heels into the flanks of his horse and was off on a dead run halfway up the hill the car passed him the black going hard and its rider's face under the rim of the uniform had a stern profile his reins lay loose on the animal's neck and he was examining his gun the road mounted to a summit and dipped again they were in a long valley and the burning barn was clearly outlined at the far end of it one side was already flaming and tongues of fire leaped out through the roof the men in the car were standing now, doors open, ready to leap, while the car lurched and swayed over the uneven road. Behind them they heard the clatter of the oncoming horse. As they drew nearer they could see three watching figures against the burning building, and as they turned into the lane which led to the barnyard a shot rang out and one of the figures dropped and lay still. There was a cry of warning from somewhere, and before the detectives could leap from the car the group had scattered, running wildly. The state policeman threw his horseback on its haunches and fired without apparently taking aim at one of the running shadows. The man threw up his arms and fell. The state policeman galloped toward him, dismounted and bent over him. Firing as they ran, detectives leaped out of the car and gave chase, and so it was that the young gentleman in bedroom slippers and pajamas, standing in his car and shielding his eyes against the glare, saw a curious thing first of all the roof blazed up brightly and he perceived a human figure hanging by its hands from the eaves and preparing to drop the young gentleman in pajamas was feeling rather out of things by that time so he made a hasty exit from his car toward the barn losing a slipper as he did so and yelling in a slightly hysterical manner it thus happened that he and the dropping figure reached the same spot at almost the same moment one result of which was that the young gentleman in pajamas found himself struck a violent blow with a doubled-up fist and at the same moment his bare right foot was tramped on with extreme thoroughness the young gentleman in pajamas reeled back dizzily and gave tongue while standing on one foot the person he addressed was the state constable and his instructions were to get the fugitive and kill him but the fugitive here did a very strange thing. Through the handkerchief which it was now seen he wore tied over his mouth, he told the running policeman to go to perdition, and then with seeming suicidal intent rushed into the burning barn. From it he emerged a moment later dragging a figure bound hand and foot, blackened with smoke and with his clothing smouldering in a dozen places. A figure which alternately coughed and swore in a strangled whisper, but which found breath for a loud whoop, almost immediately after on its being immersed as it promptly was in a nearby horse trough very soon after that the other cars arrived they drew up and men emerged from them variously clothed and even more variously armed but all they saw was the ruined embers of the barn and in the glow five figures one of the five lay face up to the sky as though the prostrate body followed with its eyes the unkillable traitor soul of one cusick lately storekeeper at friendship Wyslowski, wounded for the second time lay on an automobile rug on the ground conscious but sullenly silent on the driving seat of an automobile sat a young gentleman with an overcoat over a pair of silk pajamas carefully inspecting the toes of his right foot by the light of a match while another young gentleman with a white handkerchief around his head was sitting on the running board of the same car dripping water and rather dazedly staring at the ruins and beside him stood a gaunt figure blackened of face minus eyebrows and charred of hair and considerably torn as to clothing a figure which seemed disinclined to talk and which gave its explanations in short staccato sentences having done which it relapsed into uncompromising silence again some time later the detectives returned they had made no further captures for the refugees had known the country and once outside the light from the burning barn search was useless the chief of police approached Willie Cameron and stood before him, eyeing him severely. The next time you try to raid an anarchist meeting, Cameron, he said, you'd better honor me with your confidence. You've probably learned a lesson from all this. Willie Cameron glanced at him and, for the first time that night, smiled. I have, he said. I'll never trust a pigeon again. The chief thought him slightly unhinged by the knight's experience. End of chapters 38 and 39